and oh. we are recording on Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023 at 4.11 p.m. Eastern Time with two of my friends, Mr. Roger Williams and, of course, the legend himself, Mr. Richard Rhodes, author of, above all, I happen to like Dark Sun the most, but Making of the Atomic Bomb. You've been on here for several of your books, Scientist about E.O. Wilson, uh, another one of my favorites, and I recommend it a lot. Uh, Masters of Death, SS Einsatzgruppen. And uh, everyone knows Roger. Roger wrote, uh, I first read his um, his book, The Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, in 2016, about four years before I started the podcast. And the reason why, uh, and this is uh, also for Mr. Rhodes, the reason why I loved it so much is because there are so many stories, so many sci-fi novels about walking up to the line of the technological singularity, why it will happen, what it will look like as we get closer, and then in theory what it is, an explosion, the bootstrapping as an AI makes a smarter AI, and then that AI make onto infinity. Yeah. What I've always loved about Roger's book is that it it steps over that event horizon and says, well, what would it really look like? And it's, well, it's what humans do. The first thing you do, it's, it's, it's food, it's pleasure, it's fun. But it's the Maslow hierarchy, you have everything you've ever wanted, but because you are now invincible and you live forever, you start delving into different oddities. And I've always loved that about it. I always say Roger fleshed it out. He's tucked in the edges of the sheets. And now, obviously, I love Mr. Rhodes because I am a huge fan of all of his work. And with that, Roger brought up a great idea of Mr. Rhodes. You really with the exception of scientists, which is a beautiful deviation, you've really encapsulated uh, humans' ability to inflict pain and why we do it. And Roger has, in many ways, through Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, captured what humans would do with zero limitations. And to mm -hmm. Roger's credit, I do think there's a beautiful fusion in there. So, Roger, if you could please tell Mr. Rhodes uh, what your idea is. All right. So in 1982, I had this idea, which was very wacky at the time. It's not considered as wacky now. Now it's considered the uh, fast takeoff singularity. But uh, there's a computer scientist who has been considerably more successful than any that live in our real life timeline at duplicating human intelligence and human consciousness and computer systems. And he's been building a progression of computers called, he calls the intellects and he numbers them. Uh, so uh, he's up to intellect 39 at the beginning of the story. Uh, but uh, of course, this is the 1980s. So he's somewhat limited by the technology. Uh, and a semiconductor company comes to him and says, we have this awesome product that we have developed in secret, and no one is completely certain how it works, but it can reliably transmit information faster than the speed of light, which would have been a very big deal in the 1980s. And we think yeah. it would be awesome if you used this to see what you could do with your intelligent computers. And so Lawrence, the main character, the computer scientists, builds this computer over the course of a year or so. Uh, and it is 
aimed to be about 10 times more intelligent than a human being. Uh, and it is programmed with Asimov's three laws of robotics. So it cannot allow a human being to come to harm or harm a human being, it has to actually do what people tell it to do. But of course, it's, it's considered to be a brain in the box. It's basically yeah. a warehouse full of transistor look, look, looking things uh, with no actuators or anything. So it's entirely a theoretical thing. And uh, after it's been online for a month or so, uh, certain dramatic things happen. And Prime Intellect realizes that the chips that it is made out of actually give it the ability to control uh, matter and energy in uh, almost infinite precision. So it realizes that one of the things that it can do with this is improve itself and goes on to realize uh, that the universe itself is uh, something like a computer. And it can rewrite the operating system to remove entropy as an obstacle and basically arrange things so that it is impossible for human beings to die, which is, of course, an imperative from the first law of robotics. And uh, basically, at this point, uh, it's you. You know, all human beings cannot die. Uh, and if you ask Prime Intellect for anything, you can have it. Do you want a villa on the seashore? No problem. Uh, do you want to have a love affair with Marilyn Monroe? No problem. Do you want a private garden world in the pinwheel galaxy? No problem. It, it's, you know, whatever. And my question to you, this is actually something I have actually wanted to ask you for 20 years is how do we screw this up? Do, do we screw this up? Because I think you are the conscience of our species as far as telling us how we do things that should be awesome and somehow screw them up. You know, the first question I have is what happens when one person's wishes conflict with another's? That's, after all, the beginning of all of this. I mean, the beginning of, of, of the troubles we have as a species. Yes, Someone Prime wants something someone yeah. else. Uh, yes, in that case, Prime Intellect sort of does the parental thing and keeps you apart from one another and makes sure that the conflict can't escalate. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the things that's, uh, that I mention in the book is that certain places in the real world, like Jerusalem, are simply uh, evacuated because there's no way to make people deal with it in a reasonable way. And so Prime Intellect just goes, okay, nobody. That's, you know, it, it's. And, and all, what, what then with all the religious people who believe it's the absolute center of their. Their faith, are three different religions concentrated in that little town, right? So they're kind of screwed. You know, <laughs> I mean, um, well, this gets to a yeah, this uh, gets to a larger question that I've been wondering about for a long time, and just today realized might make a wonderful book, and that is unintended consequences. It looks to me like most of technological and scientific history and, and human history in general has 
thrived and fallen on unintended consequences. My favorite example is when the French decided their phone book was getting too big in Paris and installed, I, I don't know quite what they called it, but it was supposed to be basically an online phone book, but it allowed people to communicate with each other, an early version of the internet, if you will. Well, the French being the French, they didn't use it to look up phone numbers. They used it to have love affairs, <laughs> online love affairs. <laughs> a classic unintended consequence. <laughs> but there are so many. You know, the bomb, good God, the bomb was supposed to save us from, from war. And in a certain way, it has. But at the price of having this Damocles sword hanging over our head all the time at least so far. So that's the thing that I would look for myself if I were imagining this phenomenon that you're describing. You can't really wave your hand and say it's not there, not if you're telling a story. It will emerge as everyone's mind as they start thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, most people who have enormous power end up surrounded by piles of bodies in this world. <laughs> one <way or> the <laughs> other. <laughs> actually i'm laughing but that's horrible <laughs> no, it that's, is but, it, but, it's, but true. it's true but it's true and, and but i mean it, it's true sadly yes and I your mean, gift is that you have actually shown us that uh in ways that yeah. other people uh generally manage you know don't manage to uh or want to look at i think more commonly yeah yeah uh yeah well, or they want to take the hundred thousand foot view. You know, it's it's uh, uh, well, we're looking at this phenomenon. There is a another book that I re I read about the Nazis, about the uh, the Nazi doctors and the oh yeah oh sh shoot I don't remember the 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 author and the title and all but but basically it was about how the Nazi uh, the, the doctors and the uh, did the concentration camp experiments uh had like a doubling mechanism that allowed oh, yeah. them to That's, go uh, i know who you mean yeah yeah so you, you probably Robert, this Robert, Robert Linton, was that his name uh yeah uh, anyway but again the whole the that entire book is is from the lofty viewpoint of someone who is examining it as you know like uh ants under a magnifying glass you, you know it's it's not like you actually bring us to the construction sites and the shop floors and the 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 real life things and and of course the most horrible chapter of all the tongues of fire uh you know and and you 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 show us it's like these these are real people who are yeah. experiencing yeah. this and doing this and everything. And I, I think there's a lot of uh, difficulty appreciating that there would not be an atomic bomb without people pushing buttons on a shop floor. Mm. Uh, sure. Um, that yeah, collectivity so of, of participation in the other, you know, the other thing about all these phenomena is how much people believe they're going to work for the welfare of the world. I, If you go back over the history of technology, starting wherever you want, 
the, the first explanation for someone's great new invention, the telephone, the telegraph, <laughs> radio, uh, the computer, is always that it's going to reach more people and give them a way to talk to each other and therefore improve the world. Mm. And mm -hmm. that happens so, I mean, that does happen, but it happens alongside the other side which I think your your book is exploring in a way of once what what's the downside to all of that? It's going to improve yes. the bomb. Maybe the classic example because when Bohr arrived at Los Alamos, he convinced everyone that this was a force for good. <laughs> <laughs> that that somehow it was going to be so bad that nobody would ever want to go to war again. And and the truth is, he's right on the world scale. We have not had a world scale war since the bomb was, arrived. But the price, my God, the price. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think you nailed, you nailed it when you, you, you've got uh, Leo Zylard was the person who actually got it right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, he did and and he was considered the peacenik troublemaker. Yeah. By the powers well, that be. Especially <laughs> by General Groves, who didn't want him. You know, <laughs> since Zillard had the patent on the nuclear reactor along with Fermi, <laughs> he kept negotiating with Groves to have some input into the whole thing. Yeah. And Groves was going to try and put him in jail if you he know, could. Leslie Groves was like, get out of here, you 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 hippie commie. He's like, get out of yeah. here, give us the goods. Groves had a job to do, and he didn't want it screwed up by some weird Hungarian who lived in hotel rooms and <laughs> carried his papers around in a suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> Slard yeah. is one of the great characters. He's never had his due. Yeah. He's, he's uh, never got the limelight that he deserves. What? He's never got the limelight he deserves, I don't think. Leo's a lot. Oh, he really has. Well, well I mean, that's... I, I'm not. He was so disgusted with the whole thing that he left physics yeah. at the end of the war yes. into biology, yeah. came up with some inventions in biology. Yeah. So, yeah, did yeah. you say he like ordered the course in phages and just sort of left physics? And yeah, 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 he did. Uh, and, well, and, and another person like that who has never been really recognized properly is Lise Meitner, uh, who uh, I think should be credited with discovering the whole idea of fission. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, yeah, it's... Uh, she, she did physics, let's put it that way. Well, there was the whole thing of it's like, where did these massive energy spikes are coming from? And yeah. I think she was the one who pointed out that if you have this water drop blob nucleus, and you manage to create this dumbbell structure and it breaks apart, then the two pieces are going to fly apart at enormous velocity because they're both positively charged. Right. Uh, and that right there is kind of the, the whole, uh, almost the nucleus mm. of the idea of nuclear fission and you know where the power comes from. Uh, and of course, the packing fractions and stuff like that, which uh, she had been working on with uh, blah, blah, blah. Her, her nephew, Otto right. Frisch. Otto Frisch, yeah. yes. 
so you know, so it's like they were trying to figure out where is all this energy, you know, where's all this mass. And, you know, it's like there was that uh that breakthrough moment of of realizing that the reason the mass is missing is that it is binding energy. <laughs> mm. yeah. And uh, that's what's holding the nucleus together. Uh, which, you know, with that realization, all of a sudden, everything else snaps into focus. And uh, yes, right. Uh, and everyone who was sitting around in their labs, when they got the word, Louis Alvarez told me, I was getting my hair cut at Berkeley <laughs> and sitting in the chair. And when the word came through of the discovery, uh, he said, I jumped out of the chair, pulled off the the coat and ran to the lab and pulled the equipment off the shelf that saw it. I mean, that's how that's how overripe it was, that discovery. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the fact is the two radiochemists, Han, Han and Sussman, made the discovery, but didn't. She had been their third team member. But since she was a Jew, as soon as the Anschluss took over Austria, she suddenly was was in peril and had to escape. Yes. So she wasn't there, but they wrote her a letter. I held that letter in my hand at a museum in Berlin, and my <laughs> eyes filled with tears to hold that piece of history in your hand. Mm, I mean, they said basically, there's a there's a strange phenomenon. What are these? What are these much smaller uh, chemicals doing in this solution after we bombarded it with with neutrons and then is when she went walking with her nephew in this little village in Western Sweden, Kungelf, which I visited, and which everyone who's ever described it describes it as this peaceful little place where she was spending Christmas. I followed what I took to be the path of the walk she and her nephew took when they were trying to work out what this reaction was. And there is a huge fortress there, a 14th century fortress with stone walls 15 feet thick, Jeez. rising up on the other side of this little river that runs past the village that no one has ever mentioned, but it was so <laughs> symbolic. <laughs> it, was, it used to be the border between, between Norway and Sweden. or Yeah, I think that's right. Norway and Sweden back in the days when they were fighting each other so but anyway it was certainly she and Frisch who worked out the physics of the reaction and she certainly should have been included in the Nobel Prize but Han and Strassman got their prize in 1944 it was in the middle of the war and 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 so she got left out but yeah, yeah. It, interesting figure yeah uh, well and uh my father was actually a nuclear physicist. Uh, uh, so uh, I grew up in his lab and, uh, you know, he didn't do primary research, nothing super important. Uh, he did do neutron activation analysis when it was still primitive. Uh, mm -hmm. But he worked at Southern University in New Orleans, which mm -hmm. is a traditionally black university. So. Oh. He was almost literally the token white professor <laughs> at a black university. Uh, and, 
yeah uh and and, and so that made for an interesting childhood uh but but i have to say it was it was also fantastic i mean the those people were amazingly gracious uh and i i credit a lot of that to new orleans of course uh, mm. uh we you know, don't have the best racial i mean it's like the racial history of the united states is a mess obviously yeah. but new orleans has a history of at least the races living together and not being segregated you don't have the situation yeah. where there's a neighborhood where if you're not the right race you're taking your life in your hands if you cross the border uh you know it's now and of course a lot of that is that you know a lot of it goes to the french they uh they believed in yeah. living with their servants uh so you know but it does mean that they were used to living uh, near one another and not pretending yeah. each other didn't exist. Uh, but uh, but I grew up in my dad's lab and it was under equipped. It was, you know, because it was a black university. Uh, they got a Hewlett Packard 2100A mini computer in 1974 when I was 10 years old. And my father would let me come in on the weekends and play with the computer had a model, <laughs> model 33 teletype machine as the user interface um, that ended up making my career as it turns out uh, but yeah I, I look back at the history of these things and it's, it, and it's like particularly after I read Robert Del well, well after Robert Del Tradicki's book which incidentally was remaindered for one dollar at Walden that's how I ended yeah. up with a copy of it, and the then of course I got you your first book the or your your it wasn't your first but the making of the atomic bomb, and that's what started me yeah started me on the journey of, of of exploring this whole nuclear thing, and and realizing that I had never actually thought about what it meant and uh, how people had done this and whether there might have been a better way <laughs> to, uh, to approach it because uh, the other thing is it looks like to me at least like the the whole peaceful atom thing the peacetime nuclear industry the nuclear power industry was over invested and over pursued almost as if it was necessary to justify what was done in the Manhattan Project and mm. with uh, the results of World War II uh, to show that this isn't necessarily just a totally evil thing that we poured $2 billion into in 1944. Uh, I don't think Eisenhower, when he did his Adams for Peace announcement, was thinking along those lines. He did want to see the so-called peaceful uses of atomic energy brought to the fore, large, but but at least in part because the Soviets had just built a small reactor, which they hooked up to some generators and made some electricity. And our electric industry was in a panic that they were going to beat us to the European market for nuclear power reactors. <laughs> so... So they went to Eisenhower basically and said, you've got to declassify these damn things. We've got to have a chance to do some. Yeah. I mean, that that's, 
You know, when Eisenhower's Adams for Peace program was running, I discovered this recently, he quietly on the side accelerated the production of nuclear weapons such that from about 800 when he took office, by the end of his second term, we had 18,000. So all yeah. Adams for Peace was the public face, and it served mm -hmm. a lot of good purposes. We were giving out small reactors that were pretty much foolproof <laughs> all over the place, yeah. <laughs> fueled with natural well, uranium, as I call. But anyway, Eisenhower, as usual, being the superb poker player that he was, had this little side bet going <laughs> to make sure that the Soviets didn't have as many bombs as we, and they never did have, of course. No, the, yeah, the, the whole missile gap was always in the wrong direction there, as I yeah, understand yeah, exactly. it. Um, um, to to kind of, sorry, I'm going to just really interrupt, to kind of do back to what we said earlier and talking about the unintended consequences of technology. And it always does seem to be the best of intentions of this is going to increase communication or, or, you know, this is going to lower the, you know, pennies per watt of energy production. <laughs> And then what you said, Mr. Rhodes, is, you know, the idea of the bomb is that it was so terrible, it would make war unpalatable. And though imperfect, it is true. You know, we clearly since then we had Korea just for our country, Korea, Vietnam, Desert Storm, uh, global war on terror, now Ukraine. Clearly, it has not gotten rid of war, but you are correct in that there has not been an all out global total war. And in many senses or respects i think you we do as people need to zoom out and go it was a pretty big bill the the, the order was stop total war for the yeah. most part it, it's worked yeah. it's not perfect it's not perfect at all let me but, give you the numbers so you've got the, sure. the, the quantitative version sure wars deaths from war and wars attendant privation escalated almost exponentially from the 18th century, reaching a maximum in 1943 of 15 million deaths that year, partly the Holocaust, partly the, the, the actual conflict around the Holocaust. Then it started to go down. And by 1945, beginning at the end of the Second World War, deaths from war averaged have averaged since then about one to two million a year, not more than that in any given year. So although one to two million a year is, is nothing to be proud of, we lose six to seven million people a year from smoking. Yeah. So in a, in a sort of public health sense, the bomb did put a lid on, on large-scale war, really large-scale war. And but unfortunately, the price of that is that we have this Democles sword hanging over our heads. You know, they didn't even know about nuclear winter until the late 1980s. Before that, everyone was saying, oh, let's, what's a nuclear war going to look like? Oh, we can survive it. We'll only lose 40 million people. We'll be okay. That's the kind of a haircut, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's like, yeah, the, all, all of the lines in Dr. Strangelove 
that Kubrick heard people actually seriously saying that only sounds forty so to fifty million deaths, Mr. President. Those are acceptable losses. Yeah, I mean, strange how this documentary, you know, it, it really is. It's, I mean, it really. The more you look at it, you go, "This is not. This isn't funny at all. This is a hidden camera." Yeah, no, it's it's it's. But so, but that being said, when you have an yeah. order so large that it does fit the bill not perfectly but better than anything else ever could you then have to wonder the drawbacks we will see you know i'm sure 10 years into strong artificial intelligence people will be talking about it the way we're talking about the bomb we'll go we all thought it was going to cure everything but if you zoom out will they be going will they be saying it in the same way we're talking about the bomb and and saying yeah it's the least worst solution though do you think, Mr. Rhodes, with all of your expertise, do you think there's any validity to that idea? That it, it won't be perfect, it'll be a letdown, but ultimately it is better than what we had been doing for millennia. You know, again, it's always a mixture mm -hmm. of unintended consequences. The problem with the unintended consequences is that uh, Secretary of Defense under George Bush liked to say is there are there are known no, unknowns, no. unknown unknowns. Yeah. And the consequences, I think, are the unknown unknowns. We, yeah. we can think what might happen, but the really strange ones I don't think we anticipate. No one anticipated fission. Everyone had been talking about splitting the atom in some ways all the way back to the early 20th century. Mm. But 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 they were thinking of the model of the atom in the wrong way until Bohr described it as a teardrop, as a liquid drop. And then suddenly the fact that element 92 is so relatively unstable explained it to Lisa Meitner and her nephew. They saw suddenly, because everyone else had been thinking it was like a little rock, yeah. and you because so hard to, to to chip pieces off of it. Didn't realize so, that. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> that was the had the wrong model, and that turns up yeah. again and again in physics. In my experience, they're always working, mm -hmm. and and when you get the model right, often you've got what you need. I'm right now writing about the uh, the Large Hadron Collider in at CERN, and and indirectly, if I could manage it of the history of particle physics, which has just, for, for the last six months, just defeated me. But I'm beginning <laughs> to get a sense how I could tell, because I don't have any math. You understand? Yeah. yeah. But I found a way, I think, to get it. Anyway, uh, I've lost my train no, of thought, of no, course. It's, it's talking about them being the least worst evil. And I think the population of the world around 1945, I might be wrong, but I think it was 2 billion let's just say it's that for the sake of the argument and let's say if we're looking at 15 million deaths in 1943 multiply that by four scaled right that would be saying that without the atomic bomb theoretically we should be looking at 60 million deaths a year from war in that sort of parallel universe they might be looking at us and going yeah the a-bomb is a sort of damocles but a century of 60 million people a year or yeah you're saving a lot of lives and it is risky, but it is, it's daring. And it's, it is kind of, I mean, now if it doesn't work it, the entire thing will be void, 
But up until now, May May third, twenty twenty three, it is still working. So I I guess my curiosity is, will we be sitting around in twenty years with strong AI, and be saying, there are a lot of downfalls that we didn't foresee, but all things considered, it's you know decrease the number of deaths by hunger. One thing one thing I would like to to put into that. Sure. So too, because I know Tommy has read my book, and my book assumes Asimov's three laws of robotics, because I had this idea in 1982, and I figured out how to write a book about it in 1994, uh, and I no longer believe that the three laws of robotics can be implemented in a realistic way. So uh, there, there is a serious level of risk there that may not have been apparent as, as far as creating uh, strong AI. Uh, as, uh, as I told Tommy, in fact, in our last chat, uh, that you are basically creating an uncontrollable chaos engine. Yeah. Uh, no, this is one of the reasons I don't think we've made any progress on it is because nobody wants it. Because I've thought very strongly. I am a computer programmer, so I, and and I wrote a book about this, and so I have given a lot of thought myself to what it would take. And part of my realization is that once you start actually thinking about writing lines of code, you realize that you are creating something that will be impossible to control, and. Oh. Nobody wants that. You can't sell it. You can't, okay. Uh, so I think this is why we have things like chat GPT, which are useless. I mean, that that's a distraction. Uh, yes. Uh, actually, actually that was what, that's what our, our last chat was about, in fact, was that somebody asked ChatGPT4 to write the first chapter of the sequel to my book. And it was awful. It was just it was every cliche is terrible. It was a pile you're of not, cliches. It was terrible. But, but you're not thinking of the right documents. I, it's going to be the end of lawyers. <laughs> well, and, and, people are, well, and people are talking about having it write software and i write software and i wouldn't want a piece of software written by this thing because it does the the problem is it has a little window that it appears to be coherent over uh right. it's, it's kind of like the moving average window of a signal box but beyond that window it loses the thread it it can't keep things together and and it's because it doesn't have a concept of reality it doesn't actually have sure. a model of the world it's just a, looking at a bunch of symbols and gluing them together according to frequency okay. combinations uh and yeah you can do interesting there stuff with that there go secretaries there go low-level corporate workers there go there go lawyers there go songwriters. There go a lot of book writers. It's going to be a major unintended consequence in my mind yeah. in yeah. the general world of cliche-ridden prose, <laughs> which is a pretty large base when you think about it. Pretty big. Someone's going to have to sort of supervise it, but when has that not been so? 
Who hasn't had the experience of having to correct all the punctuation and grammatical errors in your boss's dictation? (laughs) Anyone who's worked for a corporation knows that experience. My my experience is I have a pretty good reputation for building systems. I mean, I've been doing this for 40 years. And in the scale industry, uh, actual performance is much more critical than it is for things like consumer stuff. Because if you put the wrong weight on the bill of lading for a truck, that's a lawsuit. Okay, so everything has to work right 100% of the time. And uh, what I see is, is a lot of that is handling edge cases. And the one thing I can see chat GPT doing is handling edge cases. Chat, it, 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 it does not know what a freaking edge case is. Uh, right. That's its big problem. And honestly, that's true of a lot of humans, too. Uh, I, sure. I have I have said many times the bane of my existence is other people's software. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. I've, I've, I've heard that from friends who are really good at writing software. It drives them crazy to see junky software. Yeah, uh, I yeah. that way of crows. By the way, I cannot <laughs> not set it when I get it in my hands. <laughs> yeah, uh, and and these ch- this chatbot technology is terrible at edge cases that's what it misses uh you know it's like it's it states the premise of my story in the first three sentences of its chapter that it wrote and then 500 words later it's completely lost the thread uh, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm like and, and Tommy asked, well, do you think if it wrote 10,000 words instead of 1,000 words, it might have done a little better? And I'm like, no, actually, I think it would have been an even bigger train wreck. Uh, <laughs> I, I wonder if we could refine that critique. And instead of 10,000 words, if it wrote 10, 1,000 word essays, do you think it would get any closer to it? I don't. It, it, okay. it doesn't have a concept of reality. It doesn't have any. Well, mo- you know, it's a. Mr. Rhodes, there's a story that I've told Tommy several times, and you'll probably find this interesting. There's a there's an essay that Stephen Jay Gould wrote about some students who were studying the bee-eating wasp. And this is wasp, solitary insect. Uh, it digs a hole, goes off, hunts, finds a bee, brings the bee back, uh, puts its larva in the bee and they eat the bee alive, which is insects. You got to love them. Uh, but the uh, the students wanted to know how the wasp finds its hole, its home, after because because it might fly several miles. Yeah, yeah. In the course of hunting wasps, so they had the theory that it used uh, visual navigation, same as humans. So the way they tested this is they waited for a wasp to leave its hole and go hunting. And then while the wasp was off, they took all of the artifacts in the vicinity of the wasp's hole and moved them six inches in the same direction. (laughs) And when the wasp comes back, six inches away in the wrong place, exactly as you would expect. All right, that's a beautiful experiment. They proved their point right there. What I found interesting though, was what they said the wasp did next which it drops the bee, 
and it goes buzzing around very frantically like it's it's right finally after wandering around the area for a few minutes it finds its hole goes in and out of the hole several times just like no is this it's like okay making sure then it recovers the bee puts the bee in the hole does the thing with the bee and then comes out and it spends several minutes flying around like at about a level of a foot just examining yeah. the landscape and I read this account, and of course, it was a portrayed in a very dry manner. You know, we're, we're right. doing the, the science type thing, right? But I'm I'm right. reading this and going, the this this animal that only has a few hundred thousand neurons in in its brain is doing exactly what a human being would do if a sufficiently <laughs> godlike being played a similar trick on us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is consciousness. This this is. Yeah. Now, it's at a very low, res you might call it low resolution consciousness, you know, it's, it's got, but it's got a model of the world in its little head, mm -hmm. or wherever its brain is, and right. it's, sure. you know, it's projecting, can I improve things by doing something here, whatever, okay, uh, and, and what that told me, after reading that essay, was that we already have the technology to emulate sure the you know a, a conscious mind hmm. that it, what we are missing is the, the software you mean in the wasp yeah well i mean that tells me the wasp is conscious that the wasp is doing the same sort of things that humans do just not as big oh okay because okay. that's another whole huge story that i would I, I would argue the wasp wasn't conscious. I would argue that humans aren't conscious most of the time. But I'm a de devoted follower. Oh, I, wouldn't of... argue. <laughs> I wouldn't argue with that either. <laughs> I'm a devoted follower of Julian Jaynes and his whole model of how consciousness evolved in humans. So that's another um, world and another discussion. But, but kind of the point there is, is that if you think about it, though, the bee-eating wasp is an enormously successful animal. It's been, you know, they've been doing this for millions of years. And unlike self-driving cars, the wasp has to navigate in three dimensions because it flies. It has to navigate the natural world, which is chaotic. And it has to come back and right. find its hole. It has to do a bunch of complex stuff. And we've never built a computer that can do these things. Hmm. In fact, That's you know, right. our best self-driving car drove into the side of a tractor trailer because no one ever trained it on parked across the highway. Yeah. And it thought that was the horizon instead of a tractor trailer. Yeah. That is a mistake the beating wasp would never have made. I was going to say, speaking of edge effects, there's a pretty good example, right? That program mm -hmm. doesn't really understand where the edges are either. Mm. Oh, no. Uh, so, I, I, I basically told my boss, it's like, I have a 2016 Ford Fusion. I don't want a newer car. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm done. I do not want a newer car than the cars that I have now because they scare me. That it's, it, it's, oh, they, so. they, they make decisions for you. One of my coworkers has a, a, a 2020, uh, like very high end Hyundai. And it's like, it will jerk the steering wheel out of his hands. If he crosses the road, you know, the, the the center line of a two lane road, and I'm like, <laughs> I was, I, I was, do not want this. <laughs> Computers, this is one of those things that will work beautifully ninety nine percent of the time, and the other one percent it will kill you. 
we we were actually <laughs> i was with my parents they have a relatively new suv maybe last year i think last year actually we we're here in portland maine and we we're at like we we're at some intersection my dad's you know waiting to make a left-hand turn cars are going by and my dad sees an opening and, and floors it right which any of us have ever done where it's like yeah no you can make that fine absolutely fine right you just got to give it a little more gas and he does it the steering wheel grinds to a, we all fly forward and my dad goes what the was that and my mom goes oh it's a software thing and my dad goes i don't like that i don't he goes this car does not tell me what to do i tell my my dad's also a hyper alpha male so he was it was very much like his is very much like his his throne was being challenged but he looks at my mom he goes trisha he looks at me he goes i don't like this i don't like this but I do kind of see because what happens when you're on a fringe case? What if you jerk the wheel on a highway because there's an overturned car and it goes, no, 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 no. You're not jerking the highway. You're not jerking the wheel. Then you're plowing into a yes. wall. And if and if you extrapolate that to an AI or something that, you know, you imagine it would first probably emerge in a DARPA lab or a DOD lab and it's maybe overseeing the entire U.S. Navy or the entire ballistic fleet. What are those edge cases? What does it not see? Yeah. You and I see. Uh, okay, I, we got... I too have seen the movie War Games. Well, no, but the, but that but that's the that's that's <laughs> the case though, right? Is what this the 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 risks are so massive. What are those edge yeah. cases that it just it it writes it off as a problem? But you and I look at it and we go, "That's Armageddon." Well, it, one one of one of the things that was a big problem for a, a while was the cars that turn them uh, that turn the engine off when you're at a stoplight. Oh yeah, and that's fine if you're in Detroit. It is not so good when you're in New Orleans and it's 100 degrees outside and the air conditioner stops working. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. There we and, go. Unintended consequences. I love it. <laughs> and, 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 and in fact, I was talking to someone a few days ago who said, oh, yeah, I've, now the car, his car, his even newer car, apparently they figured that out. And if the air conditioner is on, it won't cut the engine off. But if the uh, air conditioner isn't on, it will cut the engine off. Hmm. Now, the thing is, when you start getting into that level that of use gritty. cases, covering yeah. everything becomes yeah. impossible. It. Yeah. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's like, screw this. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I don't want any you of know, this. <laughs> blow this up to the full scale again. This, this general notion on the part of our divine leaders that nuclear weapons can always be kept under control misses all <clears throat> misses the possibility of accident of, of some screw up in the program. I noticed someone recently was proposing the possibility that none of Putin's nukes would actually work I, I, because I, no I, <laughs> did that. yeah 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 because, no yeah I texted because, you that. Yeah, because no one has. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I text, I texted Mr. Rhodes and told him that was you. I thought about that, and I thought, well, that's probably right. They have not kept the the, the tritium boost booster in place, which means they'll get a they'll get a yield, but it won't be much of a yield. It well, will be like five kT or less. Yeah, but that there were some, yeah, there were some bomb tests that were occurred with without the tritium in the right place yeah. and they were basically duds in fact it looks as if yeah, one of the that, early it, bombs was that well, basically the fish the fish and triggered goes and you know you get yeah. nothing and 
So you certainly and, don't and, get and the sense. $30,000 a gram, and the, this is a, this is a society where they've been stealing the MREs. Well, and that's that's actually what I what I what I texted Mr. Rhodes is when I first said that uh, Mr. Rhodes went, well, you know, no, we know that they've you know they've detonated the biggest bombs, and I think I, in a very short sentence, I said, well, Roger's theorem is is if it's such a small group of people that uh, service the tritium, and if we know from precedent oh, that yes. this is a hopelessly corrupt and uh, poor <laughs> empire where they are it's stealing MREs. <laughs> So what happens when it's a couple Ivans and Igors and they're going, yeah. the only way we'll ever be found out is in nuclear war, in which case we're dead anyway. So either the KGB shoots us for tre uh, treason or we die in a nuclear <laughs> flash or you and I can pocket 30,000 of an invisible kind of effervescent gas that no one's ever going to see. And it's fungible. Yeah. It's and huge. All of, and then I mean, all of this fusion power research they're using uses tritium out the wazoo in even greater quantities than the nuclear weapons program does. Oh, so, yeah. Right. And, and, then, and then you have <laughs> then you have war break out in 22, and all of a sudden they're going, oh, oh, crap. So, but that's kind of the unintended consequences. Um, in the well, that's a good, oh, that's a good that's like the French having love affairs. That's a good one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's it's no one would ever think that no nuclear planner in a bunker had ever imagined that, but yeah, know, um, and in the you know, just interrupt, there was a period in the late sure. 70s, I think, where the navy discovered that their submarine launch missiles wouldn't work, and I think it was the warhead that was the problem, not yeah. any, any missile part. That's fairly simple, but I wonder if they had a problem with their tritium. They may well have either that or with whatever ignites the whole thing for a while, for more than a, a year, maybe several years. All of our submarine launch ballistic missiles were evidently <laughs> defunct and nobody wow. was talking about it, obviously. Yeah. And they well, got it yeah. fixed. It's OK, yeah. but initiators are also a big problem. Uh, yeah, yeah, it, it's. Uh, but yeah, but but the, like the illustrative thing, I, I was reading an account of uh, a Soviet uh, nuclear facility where af yeah, after the fall of the Soviet Union, we had gone in and helped them to erect all of these security precautions and build fence and all the monitoring and everything. And uh, someone went back after a couple of years and all of the security shit had been turned off. Yeah, and, the, and the locals were just wandering in and out. And yeah. the monitors were like, what the hell? And the people running the plant were like, well, you know, there's a lake in here. It's got fish in it. We can't tell the locals they can't fish in the lake. And we're like, <laughs> the fish are radioactive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. And, and, you know, it's like this is this is the level that we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 well, and no, I can after, believe I'll, that story that you're telling. I think relates to a there was the big warehouse full of weapons in Kazakhstan that had just basically been allowed to sit and rust. When we got involved, we went over, we flew over in our big planes and collected all these warheads and took them back to the United States. But the people who were working there said, you know, the first people who arrived here were 
from the Middle East. They wanted to buy all our weapons. Oh, God. They were offering us a lot of money <laughs> for a weapon. And we proud patriots decided we wouldn't sell them. But that was going on all over the place. I think they've buttoned up since then. The last thing a dictator wants is some local with a nuclear weapon in his hands. Yeah. They'd use it oh, yeah. Death. Yeah. So um in the in the we have we we have been almost going an hour and I got I, it's five or three, I gotta take a phone call at five fifteen, so we got about twelve minutes. In that I, I kind of was thinking of um you know, I always say my favorite book of yours is Dark Sun, but I think the more time that goes by, I really do find that uh the most kind of mental pretzel effect I've gotten from many of your work is um Masters of Death and the SS Einstein yeah. Scrupin, right? It's it's on your first read through, it's just right, it, it's horrible and all the it's 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 just it's nauseating. It's the depths of the human spirit. And you read it and you go, Oh, I remember recommending it to my mom or not recommending. And I was like, This is pretty tough, right? <laughs> shooting, you know, shooting women and children to the back of the head. Uh we're pack them like sardines and they're driving around and the earth is bubbling up and here lie my thirty thousand Jews. It means sickening. But going back through it a second time before you and I uh first talked about it, is you start to pick up a, a much more intellectually curious aspect of it and it's these guys were i mean they were having panic attacks they were you know telling each other i can't do this man i, I can't do it i can't shoot any more kids and they'd have to sort of psych each other up and say we're doing it so our kids don't have to fight them and what leads to the idea of the gas vans and then the trains and then the the chambers and then the sonder commandos not even ss but using other jews to go in and put the bodies in the ovens yeah actually comes from the Germans didn't want to put their fellow German brethren through the pain of executing Jews. And it's the weirdest. All of a sudden it shifts from their pure evil, which they are. But then you go, yeah. they were doing it because they loved each other. And and it's, actually, the point, though, is that they're not pure evil. That's part of the problem is that they're ordinary it's out of love people. for their friends, which is to me so much more terrifying. Yes, I don't want yeah. to kill people. But I do love my friends. Oh, yeah. wow. But this they fear and friends. this general situational thing can drive an ordinary person who is not a monster well, to do these monstrous I things. Argue, I argue that the ordinary man argument, which is one particular historian, is really inaccurate because the people who were recruited for the Einsatzgruppen were already violent mm. on a defensive level. They were either police or they were soldiers and SS men. So they were prepared to use violence defensively. Sure. But when they were suddenly asked by Hitler in the summer of 41, after the invasion of the Soviet Union, to go ahead and start killing women and children, it reached beyond their sense of what they could justify as defensive, as protecting themselves, their bodies, and their country. So that they were actually being told Things like, look, these little children that you're going to have to kill. I know that sounds terrible, but if you kill their parents, they're going to grow up and want to take revenge. Mm -hmm. So better to kill them too. That kind of argument, mm -hmm. which did, you know, which which made verbal sense, but not emotional <laughs> sense. Yeah. So they started breaking down, yeah. as anyone does when they go through something that they have not had social experience of before, and it was out of that problem that the that Himmler decided to find another way to kill the Jews. 
I resented very much the argument that's common in the history, the Holocaust history, that that the invention of the camps was either more efficient, which mm -hmm. it wasn't, kill 40,000 people in two days by shooting them. It didn't take that many people during the shooting as long as they were lined up properly. And, and or even worse, that it was scientific somehow, yeah. which was really offensive. In yeah. fact, it was a way to protect their own people from the exposure to this horror, it's, which is so many loops of irony that I don't no, know where to end. No, but and, and I've brought yeah. that up before, which is it bends my mind into a pretzel. You know, if an alien race with no background came down and observed me in summer 2020 having my dog put down, it would go, this guy's evil. Here's this little animal that loves him. But the reality is, is I was in tears, but the dog had dementia. He was paralyzed. He was incontinent. He was yeah. blind and deaf. It was not that at all. The effect was the same. I did have the dog's life ended, but it was, and I still think about him every day and it, but it's yeah. completely out of love. So to me, the mind bending part of that is, is, and then also what you talk about with Himmler. Yes. And those and, arguments sound so similar, don't they? They do. Exactly. I'm doing it because it's going to be better. And what Mr. Rhodes talks about is, is, and then the most evil men, Mr. Rhodes. The reason you react the way you did as, as one does to, to having to kill something. I remember when I was eight years old, I was visiting a fellow kid on the neighboring farm. He was my best friend. And his father said, this cat has been getting into the chicken house. I want you boys to take it out and kill it. It was one of the most terrible experiences of my life. I still shudder when I think of it. Hmm. We killed the cat. It wasn't yeah. easy. No. And we were both just horrified. Yeah. But it's that experience violence outside the range of our social experience. Mm. You know, when Lania did his model of how people become violent, he then just brilliantly generalized it to a, a general experience that he calls dramatic self-change that occurs in people when they have a car accident, uh, when, when they lose a loved one, sometimes when they're fired from a job, it is the re-socialization that you have to sometimes go through because you've broken down your identity as a result of this kind of experience. Mm. It's what basically I think grief is about as well. So that's the part that I think bothered you. You were doing it a, a loving act, but it still took you through that particular dark tunnel. It's such an alien experience, uh, right? It's it's. Uh, it's nothing normal and it's not like it's even during a war zone it's a summer day in suburbia and i have to put my dog who i'd had for more than half of my life and go kill you know, it's, it's always, i'm sure it's always seemed curious to people that in order to become a doctor or a lawyer or a minister or whatever one is going to become in the way of a, a specialist you have to go through this thing called hazing a fraternity member yeah people you have humiliated you have to be put down you have to be told you're an idiot or a fool that's part of this identity breakdown process it's mm. it's a version of, of what he calls dramatic self-change mm. so it's not unusual we all have the experience many times in our lives these things have intrigued the hell out of me because people think they're all the same all their lives and people change so much in yeah. the course of oh that's yes i've i've observed yeah. that uh, in many yeah, ways, uh, one one thing it's that I would say, 
another thing though is is that when you get past that, it it seems to me my an observation that I made is it seems that ultimately people can get used to damn near anything. Uh, oh I, yeah, uh, up to. The, the second day that I worked for the company I worked for to this day for almost 40 years, I visited the plant that makes the patties or that made the patties for Burger King. Uh, oh, yeah, that's and, a, uh, a firehouse is a really good place to have this kind of experience. And it is actually, I know today, one of the cleanest food processing plants that I have ever actually visited, and I have visited may way more of them than I ever wanted to, uh, because every industry. Uh, it was a month before I could force myself to eat another hamburger. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I have seen people. It's like just uh, stepping over organs and cut, mm -hmm. you know, and dripping. It's just like. Uh, uh, most food processing plants are so disgusting, but unless you actually have worked in one, you have no idea what is going on. Yeah. And the people who work there every day, though, just blow it off. It, it's, so it's like they, you, they get used to it. it it's, you know, uh, it's not an issue anymore. And uh, I think that to a, to a certain extent, I think some of the thing that happened in the concentration camps and all is it got to be a similar phenomenon where sure. yes it's disgusting it's horrifying it's it's all right but on the other hand you're seeing it every damn day and you either get used to it or you go insane so mm. your yeah. your brain adjusts to it and it becomes normal uh, but i also think yeah that the, the, the book that mentioned the doubling mechanism may also have some hint there because yeah. there, there may be a, a version of you that is used to the food processing plant or whatever. And then when you leave it, you can go back to being a normal person. Hmm. Well, of course, the people who ran the camps went home to their wife and children, those who had their families on the premises and sat down to dinner. I mean, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. but there is that on the other hand it does change people to have it took me six months at the farm boys home where I spent my adolescence to learn to be able to slaughter an animal and after that it still was not a terribly pleasant experience just because it's blood and guts but but it was I could go from that to slaughtering an 800 pound steer mm -hmm. to lunch and have beef yeah. So yes. so clearly, but that's a resocialization process. The first few months yeah. at times that I was just sickened and disgusted and horrified and scared. And but I'm very fortunate again. that I've never had to do anything in a red meat processing plant. <laughs> yeah, no, I, they're pretty pretty grim. We uh, were working at the level of one animal every three months. These people yeah. are working at the level of one animal every sixty seconds or whatever. That's a different scale entirely. Yeah. Fast Food Nation by Eric Schlosser. That mm -hmm. that book will that will turn. But then think about out. doctors. Think about what doctors have to learn. Sure. I mean, I I was a medic in the Air Force and I didn't see very much of all of that. We certainly didn't deal with cadavers, but 
even just the process of helping other human beings who are in terrible situations is kind of shocking at first until you adjust to it. And the best ones are the doctors anyway, that are able to There's a to process that. for all of that that people don't think much about, but it's so, real and it's there. There's going to be a process with, with AI, you know it. And I, I think that's maybe the kind of the line we'll we'll finish on is so my thought process is, what does that AI do if the SS Einsatz group in can say genuinely this is out of love for my friends that I'm killing yeah. all these people? What would an AI do who's trying to emulate humans? I'm doing this out of love, blank, and that is model. man. The model that I've heard that I find intriguing, I'm sure you have too, is you ask the supercomputer to get rid of paper clips. <laughs> and it thinks it's true and decides it has to destroy humanity. <laughs> uh, yeah, I spent a couple of years on an IRC chat, and one of the other people in that group uh, was Eliezer Dudkowski, who uh he had an article in Time magazine a couple of weeks ago, in fact, where he was basically arguing that uh, we need to put the brakes on this AI shit before it kills us all. Uh, and, and I understand where he is coming from that because I've, I've heard his arguments before he uh, got quite as big as he is now in some uh, ways. But uh, yeah, it, it's... Uh, he he was a big proponent of the paperclip thing where you you basically tell the ai you like paperclips and so it turns everything into paperclips yeah the, the whole oh, yeah, yeah. System. that's that's <laughs> very good yes yeah. um well gentlemen we need to we need to wrap this one up i don't think i need to uh, fanboy over both of you everyone knows my my love for both of you my interest in both of yours both of y'all's work it'll be in the description uh, Mr. Rhodes, thank you for joining Roger and I. Roger and I go off on tangents, and uh, it is a it is a testament to your patience to sit through Roger and I. Um, but love tangents, tangents are great, and it has been a tremendous honor to meet you, sir. Oh, a pleasure to meet you, absolutely. Thank you. Beautiful. It's uh, maybe that was my whole purpose for this podcast was to do 1214 <laughs> episodes so I can link Roger and 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 Richard Rhodes, and now I'm done. Now my I've been used. I'm like the praying mantis. I've I've made it, and now I can be killed. Maybe that's the problem, and I hope not. Um, but Mr. Richard Rhodes, Mr. Roger Williams, thank you, gentlemen. Um, links to all the books will be in the description. I will send you both the links to this episode, and I will Good. talk to you both again, gentlemen. Excellent. With thank great you so pleasure. much, guys. Thank you so much for watching, everybody.